When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Chinese Studies. I am your host, Julia Kiblinska, and I'm joined here today by professors Jennifer Altahanger and Denise Ho to talk about their new edited volume, Material Contradictions in Mao's China, which was published in December 2022 by the University of Washington Press. Our editors have brought together 10 chapters, case studies, by scholars in various disciplines, as well as a theoretical and methodological reflection on materiality, contradiction, and the socialist uncanny by Jonathan Bach that ends the book. The book itself moves through various types of materials and the attendant tensions that characterize everyday life in Mao's China. In addition to exploring the role of materiality in producing social life and thus redeeming the complexity of socialist material life, the authors in this volume employ the methodological tools of not only their own disciplines, but also of dialectical materialism itself, seeking to better understand Mao's China precisely through the material practices and contradictions that the chairman himself understood as crucial tools of social practice. We're here today, in other words, to talk about another new book in Chinese studies that asks us to take socialism seriously. It's a really incredibly generative text for anyone who is thinking about materiality, temporality, and the way that social life was constructed and experienced in socialist China. But before we delve into the book itself, into its stakes and the wonderful contribution that it makes to the field, I want to take a moment to introduce our two guests. Professor Altahanger researches and writes about the history of modern and contemporary China, and in particular, the history of life under state socialist governance. Prior to joining the history faculty at Merchant College at Oxford, she was educated at Cambridge and Heidelberg and spent a year at Harvard as an Anhuang postdoctoral fellow. She is the author of Legal Lessons, Popularizing Laws in the People's Republic of China, and the series co-editor of the Cambridge Studies in History of the People's Republic of China, as well as Transformations of Modern China, which is put out by De Gruyter. She serves on the editorial boards of the journals Cultural and Social History and 20th Century China. Her most recent solo article, um, which I would encourage everyone to read, was published in the Journal of Design History and Concerns Modular Furniture in 1980s China and is part of an ongoing monograph project. She'll tell us about more um, at the conclusion of our interview. Um, And it also speaks to the chapter in this book that she contributed. 
She's also the editor of the Mao Era and Objects, a website for anyone interested in the history of modern China as told through interactive biographies of famous and more obscure objects of the Mao period. And this is a project on which she collaborates with our other guest, Professor Denise Ho. Denise Ho is Associate Professor of 20th Century Chinese History at Yale. She received her BA in History also from Yale and then a PhD at Harvard. She is a historian of modern China with a particular focus on the social and cultural history of the Mao period. She's also interested in urban history, the study of information and propaganda, and material culture. More recently, she is examining the history of the border between Hong Kong and China, that is Baoan County, or today's Shenzhen. She's the author of Curating Revolution, Politics on Display in Mao's China. And in addition to the volume we are discussing today, she also co-edited a special issue of the Made in China journal titled Transformation of Shenzhen Hong Kong Borderlands a topic that is also apropos of her contribution to material contradictions. Ho is also currently writing a grassroots history of the Hong Kong-China frontier entitled Cross-Border Relations, which we will also hear about at the conclusion of our interview. Welcome, Jen and Denise. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Um, So we generally start interviews by asking guests to tell us a little bit about their personal academic background, how they came to the field of Chinese studies, and how their new book emerged out of the stakes of a larger intellectual project. Um, Of course, I'd like to hear your answers to those questions, but since we're talking today about a co-edited volume, I'd also love to know how specifically your work uh, on the questions of materiality in Maoist China in your respective careers led you to work together on this collaborative project. Thank you for the question, Julia. It's always a really nice opportunity, actually, to think about how you got to where you got to and why you're doing what you're doing. Um, One can get quite engrossed in uh, doing these projects and bringing them to publication, and later you wonder, how did I even get there? Um, So in my case, I actually came to Chinese studies out of an interest in China because when I started my undergraduate degree, I simply could not decide on one discipline that I wanted to study. This will actually connect to why I'm doing material culture now and why this project is so exciting. Um, so at the time, a degree in Chinese studies allowed me to explore different disciplines while focusing on one larger region. And I think my interest in material culture developed during my first book project, which was a cultural history of law in the early PRC. And what I found there was a fascinating array of material culture that developed around law. And this somehow over the years became a segue into uh, reading more about material culture, then about furniture as one of those objects that are both extraordinary and ordinary at the same time, and then materials more broadly. So it sort of branched out from there. And around, I think it was 2013-14, I was just thinking back to the timeline, um, Denise and I started talking about our mutual interest in material culture. um, And she suggested, um, which I think basically was the start of this. She suggested an AES panel, um, which indeed uh, happened in that AES panel, which included Carl Gerth and Alfreda Mark, worked out so well and seemed to draw a lot of interest. And so we decided to keep going, really, um, and apply for more funding, first for an exploratory workshop that took place in late 2016, um, and then for two larger workshops at Yale and in London, which led eventually to this book. Um, and we've been very fortunate to have the support of many funders who were b- willing to invest in in this project because this kind of set of workshops and the ability to talk and meet in person, it takes funding. And so I think we're both very grateful um, for the support we've received over the years. Um, and in many ways, I think my current book project then evolved alongside this edited volume and all the other projects, joint projects Denise and I had. So it is nice to start seeing this come to fruition and to be able to share our conversation with readers. 
thanks so much also, uh, Julia, for this opportunity to reflect. So uh, your question about origin stories and how this all came together. I, I think I came to Chinese uh, studies or to the study of modern Chinese history through my undergraduate years, in particular, starting first year Chinese as a sophomore um, when I was an undergraduate at Yale. And then after I uh, graduated from college, I had the opportunity to go to uh, China. I spent two years in, um, in Hunan province in Changsha as a teacher for the Yale China Association teaching junior high and high school. And it was after that that I, I went to um, pursue a PhD in, in modern Chinese history uh, and then um, wrote a dissertation that became the first book. As you mentioned, the first book is entitled Curating Revolution. And in this book, I look at the intersection, the relationship between exhibitionary culture uh, and political campaigns in the Mao period from the point of view of Shanghai. One of the kinds of exhibitions I studied was the Cultural Revolution exhibition, in which Red Guards, uh, in their attack on the Four Olds, would display personal possessions as evidence for class. So this work, as Jen mentioned, um, uh, really sparked an interest in, in material culture, and it really uh, inspired me to further understand how people were taught to understand the world through things, uh, and then how ordinary objects gained political meaning. And I think you'll see that in the material contradictions that I was able to carry that that interest through and, and have the privilege of answering that question um, with a with a group of colleagues. Yeah, and I had the great privilege of actually um, talking with you before at Berkeley at, in a workshop about the craft of writing a monograph, right? And taking that dissertation that you describe and making it into the book. Still have the materials. It was a great session. Um, but that leads me to my next question, which is really about the craft of writing, right? And, and, and as we talked about prior to um, recording, our profession tends to reward monographs, right? That is the kind of uh, work that is reflected for tenure. Um, but this is a different type of work and one that is very valuable. So as you're both accomplished solo authors, I wonder if you could tell us how that experience of writing um, plays against the work of editing a collection of essays that um, how does that differ from individual research? What process did this book go through and what considerations are most important for a book like this to coalesce, as this one does really beautifully, I really wanna underscore that, um, around a shared set of questions. Thanks so much for that question. I, I think we were, both of us, it's our first time uh, co-editing a volume. So it was a uh, kind of learning by doing, um, a very different process, as you mentioned, from uh, writing a solo monograph. I think for, uh, for the two of us, the challenge was to allow the individual contributors in their research to maintain their own voices while also putting them in dialogue with each other. Um, and I think that uh, Jen has already walked through uh, some of the, the um, uh, some of the many things we're grateful for in terms of getting conf uh, conference funding. Um, but I think that the, the ways that the volume came together um, uh, really allowed us to put our contributors in uh, in conversation. So when we invited participants to the conferences, we already had certain dialogues in mind. Uh, we were lucky uh, in the era pre-COVID to have multiple chances to meet in New Haven and Lo in London, and then also um, in Hong Kong. Uh, so it was a real conversation, not just one on the page. And then we used plenary sessions that we would have at the end of each conference to hammer out that ver versions of the table of contents. Um, what if we put the the essays in this order? What if we put the essays in this order? Uh, so it was really a collective effort, the ordering of the chapters. Uh, and I think perhaps the fact that we could imagine different groupings suggests that the chapters were really speaking to each other. Uh, indeed, they do. Um, but 
I began, I introduced you and I mentioned another kind of collaborative project that you're working on that has a slightly different shape. And I'd like to circle back to that, which is the Mao Era and Objects, which is a website. Um, and listeners will find a link to this site in the episode description. So this is an online resource that, like Material Contradictions, um, makes the case for objects, right? But it does so in a different way and, and perhaps to a slightly different audience. Um, so Maybe, Jen, since you are the, the lead on this project, um, could you take the lead in answering this question as well? Um, can you tell our listeners about the content and goals of this pedagogical research and how it intersects with the book that we're here to talk about today? Sure, I'm very happy to. And thank you for actually mentioning the website. Um, I think the nice thing in this case, as Denise was saying, is um, because we had so many opportunities to meet and because um, we ended up being able to do so in sort of close-knit circles of discussion and small groups and, and really talking to each other also over meals and walks. Um, we were able to have these two projects. One was uh, the edited volume project and one was the Mao era and objects, um, which were very connected, but then on the other hand also spoke to different audience, which I'll explain in a minute. Um, and what evolved was really a sense of, as Denise was saying, a team, a team that learned to talk to each other, to listen, to actually here um, because at times when you give these presentations you're you're presenting and you're asking questions but later on I suspect this doesn't only happen to me you wonder did I actually understand that correctly was that actually what the person asking the question meant um, and so we had opportunities to follow up and really start to understand each other which I found really really precious um, now there are Mount Aaron Objects which is the website as, uh, as I just said that developed next to it is um, a resource with about 20 plus object biographies, many of which were written by project participants or by people who were discussants um, at the conference, but then didn't put, uh, uh, contribute to the volume. So th there's this larger network, not just the authors, but also the discussants um, and, and uh, participants. Um, and the idea was to bring together famous objects, such as the Little Red Book, which is something that Daniel Laser wrote on, um, but also less famous ones that were less famous objects that were nonetheless prevalent in everyday life, such as homespun textiles, this Jakob Eifert writes about this, or everyday furniture. And so we designed the website to work in three ways, as an online exhibition, an edited volume of short object biographies, and a teaching resource where object biographies would be accompanied by annotated primary sources that could be downloaded for use in the classroom. Now, both I and I think Denise had worked with a number of teachers in different countries. So in my case, the UK, and Denise's case in Hong Kong and uh, the US. Um, and at least in my conversations um, with teachers in the UK prior to this project, it was clear that they really wanted more resources and primary sources to teach the social and cultural history of the PRC beyond big figures and major events. So Mao was very much still dominating and at times still is um, the story and the way the PRC is taught. Um, so they were the initial audience, uh, but then we hoped, and that seems to have happened, that a good design that might work for them would also be attractive to a wider audience wanting to learn something new about Mao era China. Now, the unusual situation we had was that actually the grant from the Arts and Humanities Research Council gave us a a very good amount of funding to set this website up professionally. And so the King's Humanities, Digital Humanities and Digital Lab um, designed this website from scratch. We had input in every stage of it. They coded it um, from start to finish with the result that it really could do everything we wanted it to do, that it was a good functional design, but it was also simple and accessible, um, which was an enormously amazing process to be a part of. Um, I have greatest respect for anybody who codes. Um, and um, 
I think they did a beautiful job. And um, basically, we were also extremely lucky to have contributors who enjoyed writing this kind of biography because it is a different way of writing and who made the resource what it is now. Yeah, and it's a great one. And I encourage everyone um, to take a look at it and promote it further. It's, it's really the type of work um, that I think there should be more of in the academy, especially as we uh, fight to make ourselves relevant, right, um, to, to different audiences. Yes, well, um, then the academy would need to acknowledge that the work actually is the equivalent of an edited volume for everybody involved, which unfortunately doesn't always yet happen. Yeah, no, and it's also a, an extraordinary uh, organizational effort, right, to get resources from various institutions um, and, and, and folks from various institutions to contribute. Um, so great respect for that. But let's shift gears to the edited volume, since after all, we are here to talk about new books um, in Chinese studies. Um, so this is a genre that's pitched, obviously, at a, a more... Uh, traditionally academic audience, the China Studies Scholar, um, but your book appeals really to a variety of disciplines and is an, indeed an important text in multiple contexts. Um, can you tell us more about how you view this intended audience and the contribution that your volume makes to the study of socialism, materiality, material culture? Um, you know, Chinese studies is in some ways such a loaded category, but it's also rather taken for granted. I mean, the name of this podcast, for example, um, interdisciplinary excuse me, interdisciplinarity, uh, a mouthful, um, in turn, is such a commonplace call for scholars these days that it seems almost empty at times. Um, but I think that your book negotiates between disciplines and underscores the value of interdisciplinarity um, very deftly. Um, so I'd like to hear your take on this role of the discipline and, and the study of China and materiality. Thanks so much for that question. Um, I when, when you proposed thinking about interdisciplinarity, I went to the physical book and on, you know, sometimes on the back of the book it says, um, has a couple of categories on it, like history or Chinese studies with a slash, and there actually is nothing on the back of our book. So, so I'm left to my own devices to talk about interdisciplinarity. Um, I think one way to answer the question vis-a-vis -vis our volume is to, to sort of work backwards. Um, look at the uh, sources that the contributors are using. And I think what we found in the process of presenting and uh, and then editing and polishing the essays is that our contributors are looking at similar sources and methodology. A lot of people are using archival records, oral history, material artifacts, visual culture. So we can kind of pair these similarities with approach and then also look at how uh, the individual contributors are addressing their own disciplines, whether it's art history or film studies. Um, so one way to think about this is to think about the contributors as being bilingual. We speak with the tools of Chinese studies, and we also speak in the language of our disciplines. Um, as you say, Chinese studies, Asian studies can be a loaded category, perhaps even a political category. But I think maybe it's time for our generation to take back this term, um, take back the category, and say that without a deep understanding of history and language, uh, history, culture, and language, uh, then none of the work in the disciplines is possible. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I said, I think this book should appeal to folks who are outside, quote unquote, of Chinese studies, but it also um, is a call for Chinese studies scholars who maybe are siloed into like languages and literatures departments or history departments um, to really take the work that's coming out of those other places very seriously, because it's really speaking to a, to a set of shared questions in this book. Um, so to um, 
as a corollary to that question, I actually want to bring up one of the chapters, which is um, by Laurence Coderre, who is one of my first guests actually on this podcast, so it feels very nostalgic. Um, and of course, uh, someone who I came up with in the Academy at Berkeley as well. So I must admit that um, I seem to have a preference from Berkeley people in, in some ways. Um, but she takes this rather pointed aim at the retrospective and academic invocation of Maoist asceticism. We tend to understand socialism and the socialist uh, economy, socialist materiality through the lens of lack, either a shortage or a storage economy. But in this volume, we come to understand how material lack is materially negotiated. What are the stakes of that approach? Thank you for this question. I think you raise a really important point that we also discussed at length in our workshops. Um, now, one of the important observations that Laurence Coderre makes in her chapter is that any kind of asceticism during the Mao era was always advocated as a road to plenty. Um, it was never an end in itself, and temporary frugality was supposed to result in eternal prosperity for everyone. That was the promise of communism. Um, and I think it's important that she reminds us of this, because this understanding has gone lost. The fact that, in many ways, the entire Mao era was supposed to be perceived as a temporary stage on the way to something else. And I think in our discussions, this came up again and again. What does that actually mean to live in a time period where everything is supposed to be temporary. Mm -hmm. um, and the very real deprivation that the majority of people experienced during the Mao era was always, as a result, mediated as being a temporary necessity. Now, this is not to negate or belittle this deprivation, but rather it helps us to explain the context of material life during these years and how it provided an often very confusing context in which people negotiated their day to day. Um, and one of the points we also emphasize in the introduction is that this concept of lack has at times led to a larger absence of explorations of material culture during this time. However, material deprivation and shortage, of course, did not equate a lack of material culture. And I think this is one of those things that every chapter brings up. It does Just because you have little doesn't mean that that is not material culture and that that is not important. Um, so people had material lives and lived in different material cultures, and these shaped how they thought about exper and experienced state socialism. And as a, as a result, how state socialism was understood or what people thought it was, one of these big questions currently in the field, was it, and if so, what was it? Um, it has as much to do with ideas as it did with sensations and feelings and experiences. Uh, absolutely. Um, so to start then with the introduction of the book here, you identify a set of tensions that animate the chapters in this collection, right? We have consumerist, productivist, domestic, foreign, egalitarian, unequal, um, preservation, development, official and unofficial economies, the old and the new, and the urban and the rural. So we'll get to each one of these tensions in turn during our conversation, but I was initially struck with this idea of the old and the new, um, as someone who is also thinking about the relationship between the residual and futurity. So Jen, your first chapter actually on bamboo furniture introduces something called a hinge object that is a mediator of liberation and both the contradiction of socialism. Can you explain this term for our listeners and give us a sense of how continuities and ruptures are negotiated materially, both in your own chapter and in the, some of the other chapters? I'm also thinking about Cole Ruscombe's brick as a kind of hinge object, um, but many other examples throughout the book. Yes, of course. Um, thank you for the question. Um, I might actually start not with my chapter, but just with a little bit of background about these binaries, because Denise and I discussed them quite a bit in the course of writing our introduction. Um, 
And I think they were the ones that became rather obvious as the papers grew together and into the volume. Um, I should say that these are not categories that we take as naturalized or given. Um, old and new were not obvious labels and everybody and everybody did not know what was old and what was necessarily new. Um, and all of these tensions that you just mentioned, consumer risk, productivist, plenty, scarcity, domestic, foreign, old, new, rural, urban, they were part of the party state's conceptual framework and part of the way new China after 1949, of course, was explained. And at the same time, they also became categories people used to make sense of their surroundings. And we were seeing that very strongly throughout all of our chapters and all of our sources. The fact that they were constructed binaries and that the realities of life were far more complex, complex is thus obvious throughout all chapters. And we found that this actually made these binaries analytically useful and we could trace them as tensions and how they came about, how they were created, mediated, explained, used and contested. So in my own chapter um, on bamboo objects, um, which also ended up being the first chapter in the volume, it long wasn't, and then somehow it ended up coming to the front as we were trying to renew. It was one of the many different rearrangements we had at the end of our London workshop, um, which at Sydney said was great fun because we had everything on a PowerPoint and we were playing around with what was possible. Um, so in that chapter, I ask how a material, and in my case, bamboo, um, how objects made of this material and stories about this material and its uses told a bigger story about China's past, present and future. Now, you could do this with every material, of course, but bamboo had several qualities that made it a very interesting case study. Um, it was and is a material widely available in China, and it's long been seen as representing the country and its people. And after the establishment of the PRC in 1949, it quickly became one of those materials much discussed in media. The idea being that it was widely available and that the fact that it could be used to make many different objects of use predestined it to be one of the materials that would help China advance more quickly towards socialism. So it has this interesting connection also to things like steel and other materials. Um, there were plenty of publications that explained how to use bamboo, and I know we'll come back to those manuals later on again, because they were in all of our, uh, in all of our research. Um, it, in these publications explained how to use it, what its properties were, and also stories of models who on the, um, but because the party enabled them to do their work freely had unlocked bamboo's potential to facilitate material plenty for all. And so as a result, that made bamboo a mediator of liberation, as you say, it connected past and future, rural and urban handicraft and industry. But as you also say, bamboo could also always be a sign of scarcity. It was a material you used if you had nothing else, and the party widely praised it, especially after the disasters that followed the Great Leap Forward campaign, because it could grow back so quickly and could be used so quickly. So it's ambivalent, and this ambivalent, I think, uh, this ambivalence, I think, connects nicely to other ambivalences in other chapters. Um, uh, and that's actually what I try to capture in calling bamboo a hinge material and bamboo objects hinge objects. The skills, materials and objects that were to ensure material plenty were at the same time those to cope with hardship and the hinge could always work both ways. It was always a sign of the future or a sign of the past in the present. Um, now, in many ways, this dilemma of a material signifying and telling different stories about socialist China, that's also the theme, as you say, of Cole Roskam's chapter on the brick. And he traces how brick became the material that was supposed to materialize a Chinese socialist modern in the built environment. Now, this is the same time as, you know, the age of concrete and steel in other countries. And so China goes in and says, we're going to do this with brick. And brick is going to be that material because people can make it themselves. They can't, well, they try 
tried and failed to make steel. Um, the concrete can be made locally, but it became the brick ultimately um, to work with. Um, and he also points out how the preponderance of bricks in China's built environment then soon became both a sign of the major construction that actually happens across China's cities and countrysides after 1949. But it is also a reminder that material constraints forced people across the country to use brick rather than other building materials. And uh, Cole's own new book is also yes. part of the new book in Chinese studies pantheon. I, I believe it came out this past summer. So for interested listeners, you can also turn to that. Um, but also in reading the book, I was struck by the rigorous engagement um, with various socialist figures that is artists, thinkers, politicians, you know, the chairman himself, but also many other people who are working in Mao's China. For example, uh, Christine's Ho chap- Christine Ho's chapter on the interfacial quality of design explores the theoretical complexity of various artists and art educators as they work to define what design should and could do in socialist China, um, very much informed by their experiences prior to the socialist period as well, right, and their engagement with various Western theories of art and design. Uh, we see similar care in other contributors' analysis of socialist materialities, and indeed the close engagement with both socialist material and theory seems very intentional throughout the volume. Can you tell us more about this approach and what sort of insight is possible when these two considerations are foregrounded together? Thanks so much for pointing this out. I think uh, it's related to um, a comment you made, Julia, in the introductory remarks about uh, being the latest of books to take socialism seriously. I think that our approach comes out of two imperatives and they're related. The first is to take theory seriously because this idea of what things should mean or how things should be was very important in Mao's China. Um, that is, this is part of everyday experience, and uh, we ignore such everyday politics at our own peril. Um, the second and related approach is something that Aminda Smith wrote about in Positions in 2021, where she suggested that when we dismiss things like propaganda or state sources, we miss the chance to, to mine those kinds of sources for the realities that they contain. Um, so the insight or the main takeaway that I um, come away with um, from this approach is the idea that theory conditioned everyday life, but that theory alone cannot uh, describe its complexity. So we need to have both. Um, And I think this is important for all of us who teach contemporary China. Uh, Oftentimes when I'm teaching about China in our our own moment um, to, let's say, an undergraduate lecture, students, um, if they encounter political slogans or um, a political campaign, uh, they are confused by it. They're not sure how to read it. Um, So I think that both in the Mao period and today, um, it's essential, this um, engagement with theory on its own terms is essential to understanding China as it is then and now. Absolutely. I I tried to teach a class on propaganda once, and it took us very many weeks to get over our kind of instinctual distrust of propaganda and be able to actually get into it. So I I absolutely... um, appreciate the work that the book is doing in that sense. Um, But another genre, a a historical one in this case, that is um, also coming out of China, uh, in addition to theory, is the manual, the how-to book that teaches socialist subjects how to both relate to and manipulate various materials. And for example, Emily Wilcox's chapter on props as mediators of the rural and the urban in dance features pages of a manual that teaches dancing. I found myself kind of playing along with it and trying to figure out how how I could um, also do this work of mediation. Um, Can you tell us about this extra layer of material mediation? I mean, after all, paper is also a material, right, Um, that has a 
kind of contradictory history in in the material lack economies of um, the socialist period. But what is this doing um, in the mediation between the human and the material world that they are meant to learn? Um, what kind of object is a manual and how is it entangled with questions of materiality? Uh, that's a really, really good point. Um, and you are entirely right. Um, manuals are everywhere in the volume. Um, I think those of us who work on the on POC history will all have encountered manuals in some form in our research. They're such an important component of the knowledge economy in Mao era China. Um, and you mentioned Emily Wilcox's chapter, which is an excellent example. Um, now, she argues that props were far more than auxiliary objects. And she has this wonderful introductory session in which she you know, explains that when a Chinese dancer does dance, this is this is not just something they happen to have because it looks pretty. It is what they need. It is essential to the way they are dancing. Um, and so she reminds us that what she calls the human object, um, or one might just call it the dancer prop pairing, was essential to Chinese dance during the 1950s and after. And props are extension of dancers' bodies and bodily movements. Um, now, manuals in this case instructed dancers how to work with props, how to make them, how to look after them. And if you think about it, there is a lot of information actually that a dancer might want to look for. Shape, composition, the weight of a prop, it determines a dancer's movement. I remember during the conference, we had this wonderful discussion about other props that maybe nobody really had been thinking about um, in terms of Western dance, as in nobody outside of Chinese dance where people really think about props, um, such as actually how ballet dancers manipulate uh, their shoes in order for them to do exactly what they want um, and so that they can actually do the kind of dance and work um, the way they want on the stage. Um, now, in, in Emily's example, as in the example of other manuals, the idea was that such knowledge actually should be made as as widely available as possible to a non-expert audience as a way of empowering people to learn new skills rather than leaving this to so-called experts. And I think we see here a really interesting dimension of linking that theory with practice, that whole Maoist idea of theory and practice have to go hand in hand. The one cannot, it cannot exist without the other. Um, and uh, it was also, of course, part of the CCP central concept of the mass line to ensure that people, um, that knowledge from the people would be made accessible to people across the country. Uh, now, this was, of course, enabled by a mass publishing networks for manual and how to guides. Now, we don't really go into that uh, topic in the actual book, but it would be really interesting to see this spun out from there. What's the material culture of these books? Who gets them? Who publishes them? How does this whole thing work? A couple of historians uh, working on the history of publishing, Nicolette Volland and others have started looking at this and I think there's a real there's an incredibly rich field there um uh, and in my own case, for instance, there were manuals to work with bamboo. Cole Roskam shows manuals to make bricks. Tia Lee examines manual for mobile projectionists. I don't know, Denise, did you find many more, presumably, because you also work with thank, manuals? Thank you. Um, I think the so my chapter is about outside objects. I'm interested in mm -hmm. uh, material goods from outside of China who that um, circulated within China. They were either mailed in as packages or um, carried over in the luggage, say, of overseas Chinese. Uh, so my chapter is about these things from outside that are not necessarily imported, but are brought into China. And so I, I suppose if you look at my chapter, the manual that the manuals that I rely on are actually manuals that are travel guides published in Hong Kong or Macau on how to go to China. Uh, so there's all kinds of practical information, like the train schedules, uh, where to stay, and so on. But then there's a lot of uh, material that gives us a glimpse into 
how people actually traveled um, and uh, it, it gives advice on what to bring to your families, uh, what kinds of uh, material goods are scarce, what would make good gifts, their advertisements uh, for things that you could you could purchase as, as gifts to bring into China. Um, so I think the manual exists both in and outside of China. Um, circling back to Julia's question about what kind of object is a manual, I think it's so many things. It's a text, it's ephemera, um, it's it's an object, it's mediator, um, it's something that is um, uh, may not be obvious as a historical source. So for the undergraduate and graduate students who are listening out there, I think I would encourage you to add um, manuals as a kind of ephemera that could be used to enrich your research. Uh, indeed. Uh, access to such manuals, however, is, is somewhat limited. I mean, I want our collectors, uh, libraries also to start to start buying these types of objects, right? Um, they're, they're, they're everywhere in China and kind of used bookshops. They're, they're very cheap, um, very plentiful, but uh, hard to come by in the States as research objects. So perhaps someone out there can start thinking about that as well. Um, so Wilcox's chapter, like many of the chapters, is also clearly about the urban and rural divide, um, as are the contributions by many other authors like Jakob Eiferth, Madeleine Yudong. The, the rural imaginary and the rural reality, for that matter, are crucial to the function of the Maoist state. Yet for many of the urban historical actors in the book, the countryside is difficult to negotiate. What are the objects that mediate between the urban and the rural in the book? And how do they reify both contradiction and communication and, and like flow, I guess, between these two areas? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, we only have one chapter, actually, that by Jakob Eifert, specifically focused on rural material culture, where he makes this really compelling argument that we need to think of two material cultures in China, at the very least, a rural and an urban one. Um, and then there's Covell Maskin's chapter on third front construction, which also takes us into rural living um, in the context of industrialization here. Um, however, all of, most all of our chapters touch in some way on the rural-urban connection, because it was so central to everything the party did. Um, many of the objects that mediate between the urban and rural are everyday objects of use. Um, so, for instance, in the case of Madeleine Yuedong's chapter, vegetables tell a story of urban change and of the city's connection to the surrounding countryside. In Jakob Eifer's chapter, Homespun Cloth, one of several examples of rural material culture he discusses, represents the rural, whereas machine-made cloth is associated with urban consumption. In my own chapter, bamboo furniture is handmade in the countryside for consumption in the cities. In Emily Wilcox's chapter, objects represent the rural as a way of trying to mediate a connection between rural and urban, as you say. And then in other chapters, rural objects become mediators of an urban-rural divide rather than mediators of an, rural, of an urban-rural continuum, if you so want. So they work actually against the party state's own narrative um, of connecting rather than separating um, the city and countryside. So that could be said, for instance, of TLE's chapter, where villagers are fascinated by mobile projectionists, tool and machine. So there's urban things coming into the countryside. There's always this sort of push and pull between um, separating and connecting um, rural and urban through material um, and material objects. Um, I think many scholars of PRC history, of course, have written about how the Mao era reinforced the rural-urban divide it claimed to want to abolish. And so I hope in many ways our chapters can contribute additional object-based examples to this argument and really think about that rich material culture, that rich material dimension that connects and separates and somehow keeps in a constant network the rural and the urban. 
Yeah, I agree that that comes across very strongly in um, Eifert's chapter. He's very uh, rigorous and meticulous about uh, tracing the reality and the and the, the economic reasons for which this this divide is actually quite crucial to the development of socialism, right? Um, well, another tension that underlies the book is also a contradiction between the ideology of plenty and the reality of scarcity, something that we've talked about already at length. Um, but in your chapter, Denise, for example, this disparity, especially in terms of food availability, is negotiated across national kind of colonial borders um, and with the help of postal infrastructure, which brings up two avenues of inquiry that we haven't really talked about yet. And I would like to, which one is infrastructural and one is alimentary, right? So first, what networks and modes of circulation and perhaps related stoppages, the, the, the moments where the network fails to work, are key in this book? And how does material travel on infrastructures? And are there infrastructural materialities that have emerged for you through the book? Thanks for that question. Let, let me address them in turn. So the first question about infrastructure, I'm so glad you brought this up because I, I believe that one of the categories we initially suggested for an introduction was circulation, but then um, it, it fell to the cutting room floor. So it's a good chance to think about that again. Um, but of course, as you say, many of us are interested in the circulation and system of circulation. How do these objects actually move about? Um, my example I get at through packages that were sent through the Postal Service, but also other ch channels uh, like the China Travel Service as a travel agency um, was also um, responsible for the movement of not only people, but goods. Um, I think GLE's film projectionists are creating a media infrastructure, um, physically creating a, a media infrastructure by by walking over mountains, uh, by putting together equipment, carrying their own electricity generators. Um, so there, there's a media infrastructure. Um, in Madeline Yue Dong's work, she's looking at uh, the supply of vegetables, the supply of pickles. Um, so this is about how food companies in Beijing are adapting to a, a, a changing supply chain. Um, what happens when you have socialist transformation that changes the incentives for producers? How does that influence the consumers at the other end? Uh, Koval Maskin's workers, they're, bringing, they're going to Shanghai and bringing back personal goods because the third front is just being put on the map. Um, I think that one theme that links uh, the examples that I just gave is the interplay between the local and the regional or the national. Uh, some of the examples in the book are going to be intensely local. Um, things that are heavy are not going to circulate like bricks uh, in, in the same way. Uh, but then small consumer goods may have a much wider purchase. Uh, I was reminded of Adam Frost's recent Harvard dissertation about uh, these, these underground economies and how um, speculation occurs. And I, I think that what this research demonstrates is that unofficial networks, unofficial trade um, may not have been as restricted as we thought it was. And so perhaps future research can uncover other kinds of informal infrastructures that form an underlayer to official infrastructures. Um, let me see. So your first, your second, the second part of your question was about food. I, yeah, I, I, I haven't, I haven't gotten a chance to actually, um, set you up for that question yet. So let me do it. Let me, let me give you a break. Um, so, so food, right? So we, we've talked about the circulation of food, but food is a very specific type of material, right? A very literal form of sustenance at a moment when spiritual nourishment seemingly outpaces, um, dietary, right? Uh, so what are the materialities that are involved in feeding um, the masses and, and, and moving food mm -hmm. to people? Thanks for that question. I, I think that uh, you, you could actually write an entire book um, 
crazy, the whole process here. Um, you have the production of food uh, to the processing of food, and this comes up in Madeleine Adong's essay, the transportation of food, a sale in markets, which would bring up other questions like rationing, so special supply, what work units get access to, to what materials. Consumption of food would be another node in this process. Uh, how do individual families consume food? Um, what is the experience of eating in communal kitchens? Uh, and then, of course, the flip side to that is uh, the question of lack that you brought up in an earlier point, the lack of food, the creation of food substitutes, uh, which is the background of, of, the, of the history of my chapter. Um, and then on the whole other end of that spectrum is food as waste, recycling, um, and the production of night soil, um, a topic that Nicole Barnes is currently working on. So I, I think you could, um, you, you could have an entire book about these different elements of food as, as material culture. And maybe even an entire book series. I feel like we're throwing out so many ideas during our conversation for um, further research. And also, thank you very much for pointing to the research that's already ongoing that our listeners can turn to as well. Um, so to circle back, you mentioned in your initial answer about infrastructure, Jieli's work, right? So in this chapter in particular, the medium and the mediated or the media environment um, strikes me as keywords, but keywords that really recur throughout the book, um, the shamanistic proportions, right, of the spirit medium of cinema and projection in Lee's chapter. But mediation as such is a kind of slippery concept, and it means different things to different people. What is mediation and media in material contradictions? Thank you for that question. Um, I think for, uh, as we're zooming out and thinking about the, the the volume as a whole, mediation is an answer to the bigger question of what do objects do? Uh, so I think for the, the authors and for, for us as editors, mediation captures how objects can have agency. They can represent, they can signify, they can channel, um, and they can bridge going back to uh, Jen's invocation of this hinge object or hinge material. Uh, in addition to Jaylee's chapter, we have other examples. Emily Wilcox's chapter about dance and dance props. Props can mediate between the urban dancer, the rural environment, and between the dancer and the audience. In Christine Ho's essay on design culture, design can mediate between traditional elements and socialist, the socialist present. Um, and I, I think another way that mediation is a capacious keyword is that it can encompass both the intended messages, uh, for example, in Laurence Coderre's study of pictorial magazines uh, that uh, that produced and displayed plenty, um, and then also unintended messages. So in my chapter, I bring up this idea of material propaganda, this alternative message that was brought in by these uh, objects from the outside. So I think for us, um, mediation is a key word because it can encompass all of these different elements and because it can give objects themselves agency. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that complexity of these mediated networks, right, and the mediation, media environment of the Maoist period comes across in the, in the examples that you mentioned, and even further throughout other um, chapters in the book. Um, so that's just my plug for those of you who are interested in media, this book is also for you. Um, but one more big keyword, I suppose, that I think is not one of the book's main analytical rubrics, at least not in the introduction, but it kind of lurks behind many of the chapters, and that word is the Cold War. Um, for example, the bamboo curtain is, uh, after all, like the Iron Curtain, a very material metaphor and one that is, uh, you know, uncannily uh, repeating itself, right? We have this, these discourses, again, uh, emerging in our own popular press, in our own everyday lives. Um, but 
let's go back to that original global ideological conflict. It emerges in um, Meiskin's chapter about the Third Front and about car production on the Third Front. What are the material considerations that stand out when we consider the Cold War from the Chinese perspective? What material imperative challenges and projects emerge out of this conflict? Thanks so much for the question. And let me get started with a bit of an answer and then I'll just uh, hand it over to Denise because we were both thinking about um, these questions. And of course, as you say, um, that very material metaphor, curtains made out of iron and bamboo, um, it reminds of borders. But um, it's, it's also in a way that idea of the curtain is also impediment, actually. I think that's why we didn't really introduce it so much into our research, because one can tend to forget just how porous many of these curtains actually were um, in concrete material terms of traveling objects, but also in ideational terms with people always looking across whatever border um, there was and trying to engage with what others were doing. So in, for instance, in the case of uh, my research, and not the one published here, but just generally what I'm looking at in terms of furniture, it's remarkable just how much access people actually working within uh, factories very often had to um you know, to uh, designs and, and ideas about new living and uh, new forms of uh, uh, interior uh, decoration, etc., in other countries. And that is never just restricted to the socialist world, um, even in the 1950s, and then definitely not in the 1960s and after. And so in a way, I think we saw so much conversation across borders that it really just didn't become a term um, that in the context of this book seemed key to everything we were doing. Um, And I think we were trying to think about what people actually had and encourage people to think about what people had at the time, where these things came from, how these objects tell stories about everyday life, but that are connected, but often also diverge from official narratives and how in many ways, even if they're not entangled, they're comparative um, and they're connected. Um, I think very often people make the point uh, that, you know, the Cold War as a framework of the Cold War is not really applicable in Mara or China. Um, Just that term didn't quite matter the way it did um, in uh, 1950s and 60s Eastern Europe, for instance, uh, constant reference. Um, well, Europe and Eastern Europe, sorry, Western and Eastern Europe, let me correct myself here. Um, so I think in turn, we were sort of mirroring mm. the fact that it didn't so much appear in our sources uh, by not having it appear so strongly in uh, our own discussions. But Denise, you clearly were talking about a border yes. in your chapter, so um, let me hand over. I do invoke the, the idea of the bamboo curtain in my own work for a couple of reasons. I think first, it makes the project of the Hong Kong-China border explicable or immediately recognizable to people who are more uh, familiar with the European experience of the Iron Curtain. And I think the fact that it's in bamboo and we can talk about porosity and flexibility um, (laughs) is an advantage. Um, And I think, um, although Jenna, I think, is right to mention that this isn't present in all of the um, essays in the same way, it was, in my research, a phrase that was invoked by my historical actors themselves. So in the words of people in the New Territories of Hong Kong, um, near the border with China, they would sometimes petition the Hong Kong government by saying they didn't want to become another East Berlin, that they were too isolated, for example. so I think, but 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 for our the essays in our um, our volume, mine Koval Meskin's the last chapter in the book, um, are part I think of a larger historical turn that includes the Chinese experience and grassroots experience as part of the global history of the Cold War. Um, we see this in very recent book, Essay Jiangqin. Um, 
uh, most recent work, I'm sorry, uh, Se Jung Chin has an article out about Korean war propaganda on the ground. Uh, and it demonstrates how, as Michael Sony reminds us, geopolitics could influence everyday life. Um, what our book de demonstrates, I think, is that Cold War ideologies could have material consequences. And Amaskin's workers of the third front have a front row seat um, on that uh, particular topic. Nice way to build in a pun to the answer to that question. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so with the Cold War, then maybe we can come to an end of our discussion. But as usual, as we wrap up, I like to point outwards and ask about your new projects, um, either collaborations or solo research. What new books can listeners look forward to from you? I, I can start. Uh, my my work is called uh, Cross Border Relations. It's a grassroots history of Hong Kong and China, and so uh, the way the current work or the the piece in the volume fits in um, is that the section on outside objects fits into a larger part of the book entitled Families, which examines things like cross border kinship ties through reunion uh, via refugee flight, and also the fate of cross border property, uh, in particular family estates that span the border. In the book as a whole, what I'm hoping to uncover is uh, stories about the porosity of the border, the opportunities that were afforded by difference, even though sometimes these opportunities could turn into threats. Um, and then finally, the networks that were made and remade over time across this border. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> that sounds so fascinating, Denise. I'm briefly lost for words about my own project. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, as you were saying, I'm, I'm working on a project that tentatively I've entitled Furnishing Socialist China. Um, and the idea really is to explore everyday material life and furniture between the 1940s and the 1990s in the PRC. It started as a project on many, many more objects and furniture. And then I realized I had many, many sources and I couldn't quite bring them all together. And so I decided to write a book um, inspired in many ways by Leora Auslander's wonderful work on furniture across a revolutionary um, in post-revolutionary France. Um, so in my case, to write a book about furniture in socialist China that takes us from the factory spaces to offices and homes, from materials and material sciences um, to design practices at all levels, um, from the national down to the grassroots factory, and from things like uh, striving to and eventually in the 1980s being able to make ready-made furniture, um, or uh, also as it's some, uh, not sometimes constantly actually known, uh, modular furniture. Um, to practices of DIY and recycling. Um, and at the same time, uh, because it was so much fun doing this with Denise, I'm finding myself doing another edited volume, uh, this time uh, with uh, Aaron Moore, who's a uh, historian of China and Japan at uh, the University of Edinburgh. And we're putting together a volume called How Maoism Was Made, um, which has more than 16 contributors. So actually, we're thinking of about 18 or 19, which makes this volume seem like a very manageable group and, and small and uh, tightly knit team. Um, and we're examining how work and the concept of making a new society society actually in concrete terms influenced many aspects of life and practices during the early PRC. Wow. Well, both of those or all three of those projects sound really fascinating and all the best of luck as you as you finish them. Um, I'm sure our listeners are also looking forward. Um, thank you very much for your time today. I encourage everyone who's listening to find a copy of Material Contradictions in Mao's China and discover the depth and breadth of the research that we've only really been able to skim during this interview. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you for having us. 
Listeners, I look forward to meeting you again on the next episode of New Books in Chinese Studies. Goodbye.